You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners to our conversations, they are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Mark, where we discussed some of the nuances of Cliff Asnes' recent article regarding the cost of being a pure trend follower, as AQR has experienced, as well as the impact that inflation has on trend following, which of course is a very topical theme at the moment. And I also want you to, I also want to encourage you actually to check out the Wednesday episode with Jim Kasang and I, where we, instead of having a, a guest on, we decided to do a kind of a freestyle uh, episode a bit and share some of our own views on the global macro environment as it stands right now. So if you missed any of those episodes, I invite you to go back and check them out right out after you finish uh, today's episode with me and Jerry. Jerry, fantastic to be back with you this week. How are things where you are? How are things going? Uh, things are great here in Florida. Very warm, uh, but uh, still nice. And uh, trading has been better. I thought last Friday was a good way to start the weekend. I was very happy with all those sell-offs, the currencies. And then yesterday, we got a little bit more of the same, and the trends are looking pretty good. They're still pretty much intact. Um, so I'm glad I kept my short positions. Sorry to get into trading so quickly, but... <laughs> no, it's fine. I remember last time we spoke, you were in Portland, and we were kind of uh, at the end of uh, July, which wasn't... You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a disaster. I caught the feeling after we spoke that wow, it's a, it's a rough month for Jerry. And I looked up the numbers, but it didn't look very rough to me at all. So um, I know I it's, I'm embarrassed modest. to say that I got uh, I got pessimistic, and I didn't even look at our returns. I was just looking looking at the body language of our traders, and the body language was bad. So I'm like, whoa, what is going on? But you know, having such uh, loose stops and stops that are so far away from the market, I was anticipating the worst. But um, some of our little money management ideas kicked in and helped me out a bit. Yeah, that's good. Now, in terms of a quick summary of the week, uh, I wonder if you really can do a quick summary after a week where Chairman Powell has been out speaking from Jackson Hole. Um, and that happened, of course, uh, Friday. Um, but the speech didn't follow the post-FOMC press conference structure in which you have normally a Q&A session. Uh, and because of that, there were actually some whispers that Powell would take some responsibility for the mess that he's overseeing at the moment. Um, but that's not really what happened. Instead, he painted a somewhat fairy tale picture of the current state of affairs. Uh, of that, there were three kind of really jaw-dropping quotes that I think everyone should pay attention to. And in chronological order, in terms of when they were mentioned in the speech, uh, we have, um, and I quote, the absence so far of broad-based inflation pressures. Uh, we have another quote, longer-term inflation expectations have moved much less than actual inflation, suggesting that households, businesses, and market participants also believe that current high inflation readings are likely to prove transitory. And finally, he, uh, sees, he said, 
Today, we see little evidence of wage increases that might threaten excessive inflation. I don't think I want to uh, comment on all three statements today, only to say that I think that perhaps only 12 people in the world who also happens to be members of the FOMC committee believe that these statements statements are close to reality. Anyway, Powell also used his speech in Jackson Hole to reiterate that the US central bank will keep raising interest rates and probably leave them elevated for a while to reduce inflation. And perhaps he took the opportunity to push back on the recent rally in US stocks that was fueled by speculation that policymakers would soon reverse course from their aggressive monetary tightening. But he probably did say something that we don't hear very often from a central bank, namely, there will be pain to households and businesses as they fight inflation. Perhaps another good reason to consider trend following as part of any portfolio, really. But since you already got into your trading stuff, Jerry, um, before we dive into the uh, topics and all of that, what's been... Um, what have you been noticing in the markets uh, or anywhere else in your kind of uh, systematic rule library since we last spoke? Well, you know, it's not been too difficult to just hang in there with these uh, good positions, uh, long dollar and short bonds. And I still have a few grains left, uh, energy, uh, natural gas, heating oil, rebob and crude. So it's it's looking pretty. Uh, looks like yeah, I made some. I gave back a lot of profit on open trades, but the loose pants helped me stay in these trends. Um, I think it's particularly challenging these days, especially for people who are, haven't been around as long as you and I, because of the so much noise, so much in Twitter and podcasts and spaces that you can be bombarded with that make you talk about and think about your position. And I think to a large degree, we don't really want to think about them. We don't want to look at them. Just let the signals happen. And um, there's so much narrative around them. I get so frustrated because I'm a child of the 70s. We have inflation. Rates need to go where uh, start approaching the rate of inflation, interest rates, that is. And uh, no one talks like that. And there's all these narratives about how they're going to cut rates. And so we kind of know, but we really don't. We think we know that the <clears throat> bond market's going to go lower and stocks are going to go lower because that's what happened when we had a lot of inflation. But I got so frustrated that yesterday uh, I read an article about the odds of a 50 basis point hike or a 75 basis point hike. And now the odds are greater for 50 than they were. But it doesn't matter. When, it, when we get this rate increase uh, from the Fed next month, the bonds will rally. You know, People are buying the dip in all of these markets trying to call the bottom. And it's just so helpful to have those rules and the trend-following rules, but uh, we, it really pays to not think too much or listen too much, as much as I love the podcast, um, you can get uh, swayed in, in questioning your, your strategy sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you mentioned something quite interesting. You mentioned this thing about, um, you know, the bond selling off. And of course, um, I don't think you and I have talked about it, um, but I did uh, talk to um, one of the other guys uh, a couple of weeks ago. When this article came out uh, where JP Morgan and Nomura were saying, well, trend followers have now flipped their positions to long bonds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we were commenting at the time saying, well, we don't see any evidence of that happening. Uh, I certainly don't see any evidence in the performance uh, so far that that should have happened because bonds have pretty much sold off since that article came out. <laughs> so uh, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of misinformation and obviously the rules are 
are our guardian angel uh, to just keep us on the straight and narrow, so to speak. But in terms of trend-following um, performance this week, I imagine that um, most trend-following strategies, if not all, uh, continued their advance uh, led by the fixed income sector. Uh, some of the energy markets uh, also stood out, of course, if you're trading any of the uh, European um, gas markets, you probably did re- really well. And and of course, I'm sure also, also electricity, if people are trading that, I would imagine that would have been pretty good as well. Um, currencies, energies, grains also uh, most likely added some performance. Uh, and I'm not so sure about equities. I think people have mixed positions in equities. Certainly we have on our side. And uh, softs uh, probably also was a little bit of a losing sector and metals are most likely to be flat. But of course, the inflation story is still very dominant in the markets that we trade, um, and and not least um, because we have this energy crisis, in particular in Europe. And I saw that on Friday, the German electricity prices um, surpassed the equivalent of $1,000 uh, per barrel of oil. So that's just incredible, and I can't um, – I really don't want to think about what happens uh, as we get closer to winter – um, but, you know, we shouldn't ignore also, we talk a lot about energy, but I don't think we should ignore the food sectors either. Uh, and I know this is not strictly sort of trend following the what I'm about to say. Um, but what I will say is that it's very interesting from, uh, you know, reading up on stuff and listening to people that in the last, and this is something that I, maybe I was aware of, but I hadn't paid too much attention to it. But apparently in the last 20 years or so, there has been some real change uh, in the, um, you know, in the amount of grain the demand that we see, and, and that's predominantly due to changes in food preferences uh, in many countries where they now can afford uh, to get protein as part of their regular diet, but also because uh, many Western countries now include ethanol in every gallon of gasoline they produce. Um, so, um, so. If you combine that with the use of, of, or if you, because we've had the use of fertilizer and we've actually also on a global scale had pretty good weather, so far we've been able to cope with that uh, extra demand for the last two decades. Um, but now that we have this price explosion in, for, in fertilizer prices, um, you know, you don't need much to go wrong in terms of uh, the growing season, in terms of the weather before we could really see significant prices like we saw um, you know, about a year ago when um, when the grains took off. Um, and unfortunately, this could also lead to some kind of food nationalism uh, if this really um, uh, takes off. And of course, as, as you would put it, Jerry, it might even provide for a few outliers. Uh, so, um, but that's just something that I think everybody should be aware of. Let me just quickly run through the um, performance where we stand and then we drop into our topics um, for today. So BTOP 50 index as of Thursday night. Um, and by the way, I think Friday was an okay day for trend followers as well. Uh, up 1.87% for the month, up 14.89% for the year. The SOCGEN CTA index, the one that is being replicated by um, the uh, Dynamic Beta Group, up 3.35% uh, for the month, up 21.37% for the year. Uh, Sockgen Trend Index up 3.98% for the month, up 28.19% for the year. And the tr- uh, Short-Term Traders Index is pretty much flat for the month, up 105 for the year. My trend barometer finished at th- uh, 34, which is weak. A little bit surprising, actually, but it is a different time frame that longer-term trend follows uh, use. Um, so that's probably why. And the MSCI World Index, after the beating we saw 
in the markets this week. It's now down for the month, 1.88% and down 16.6% for the year. And the government bond index, just another down month again, down 2.15% uh, so far in August. All right, um, we've got a few topics. Some of them we've touched on the last couple of weeks, but the reason why I want to bring them up uh, is I also want you to weigh in on this, Jerry, because it is um, some pretty important ones. And um, as I've heard you say, some of these topics are not going to go away anytime soon, so we might as well tackle them. Um, and the first one is this um, idea of uh, CTA, Managed Futures Replication Strategies, um, the Andrew Beerman product that um, that we brought up a little while ago. And actually, as a this could be our little precursor because actually Andrew has agreed uh, very kindly to come on uh, the podcast. So next time you're on, sometime in October, uh, we will have Andrew on. So that's going to be a really fun conversation. Uh, so I can't wait for that uh, to happen. But um, maybe today we could just voice a little bit of our sort of uh, pros and cons uh, in terms of what we uh, think when we think about these products. And obviously, I would love to hear sort of where you stand on on this. Um, so do you want to just talk a little bit about, because the last time we spoke about it, it had just come out uh, in terms of a topic for us to discuss. Uh, you were traveling and I don't think you had had time to really gather your thoughts about um, CTA replication. But now... Uh, I think you have, and I think you have some opinions about it. So I'd love to hear what they are. Well, I really like it. I think it's just a fascinating idea, fascinating topic. Um, I think it's funny that it's happening. I think it's a huge mistake for managed futurists to dismiss. I think it's going to go away. It's um, it's interesting because we've heard about AI so long. AI is going to take over. So um, it's kind of interesting that <clears throat> this application of AI is taking off after the CTAs to replicate their performance and doing a really good job of it and not trying to come up with their own system, but to copy performance of existing uh, top 20 CTAs. And like I said, they've been very successful since they started in 2019. I think it's, or maybe before, but I think it's 2019. It's been a very successful raising money. It's an ETF. It's low fees, 85 basis points, and that's sort of their strategy is we're perfectly happy uh, with overperforming by a bit, underperforming by a bit. Our added value is only taking out 85 basis points versus probably one in 10 or a management fee and probably an incentive fee for most of the managers that are in that um, in the industry in managed futures in general. So um, I think it's a great thing. I think that um, it is a situation too where it, it lends itself to manage futures versus trend following. I think with my simple trend following that relies on uh, not reducing outlier trades based upon correlation or volatility that uh, you literally would have to replicate it. You'd have to trade 200 markets like I do or 300 or you know, whatever, whoever you're trying to replicate. And so Andrew talks a lot about this is not me trying to uh, replicate a pork belly trade. It is just sort of broad sector exposure, you know, short a few currencies, short some bonds, short some and long some uh, stock indexes and long grain futures or energy futures. And so he can do that because 
most of the managed futures industry is not hunting outliers in the same way. They really are uh, going to be, be replicating a sector move. And this, that's where the CTA industry in recent history has done, that's their, um, that's how they make their money is when all the grains move or all the currencies or all the interest rates, not as much as uh, Rich and I who would uh, focus more on canola and rapeseed and tin, these outlier trades and let them run, let them go and not rein them back in. So it is kind of interesting that the smartest, the largest, the most sophisticated and complex CTAs are being replicated and uh, simple classic caveman trend following. Uh, I mean, our day may come, you know, why, what's to stop them to trade 300 markets or 200 markets and 100 stocks like I do and try to replicate me as well. Uh, so we, we don't know what's really going to happen in the future, but I am kind of getting a, a little smile, a little kick out of watching what happens to managed futures in general. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned some interesting things uh, that I do want to comment on. I um, I want to preface my comments actually by saying, because I have a feeling Andrew might be listening, that actually I think, uh, and I've said this before, um, if these replicator products is what it takes for having a bigger institutional participation uh, in um, managed futures slash trend following, I'm all for it because I'm a strong believer that any all portfolios are better off with having a a healthy allocation to these strategies. So I think that's so that's a good thing. Now that doesn't mean that I think it they are better uh, than what the underlying managers do. So some of the thoughts that I had written down um, and uh, that just to comment on, and of course this is just a warm up to uh, the conversation we're going to have with Andrew. That is. Um, I definitely want to ask Andrew why he couldn't replicate, I mean, whether he can replicate Chesapeake without trading 300 markets, because I'm kind of thinking that we might be surprised. Um, of course, it's not going to be uh, completely accurate, um, but in the long run, may, maybe they could, um, because again, they, they do this sort of linear regression to find markets that kind of looks like they match the um, the performance uh, to a large extent or positions that, that would match the performance. So it would, would be interesting. Um, I think it's going to be harder, but whether it's impossible or not. I don't consider what they do as AI. That's not my impression. I think it's just a linear regression of, of things. Um, but um, but who, that's another thing that could be interesting to, uh, to find out. Um, our friend Arthur Sepp um, shared some analysis on Twitter, initially the wrong index, but he updated it this morning. And as far as I can tell, regardless of, of, of what's been said about um, the, uh, the replication, I don't see any benefit on a risk-adjusted basis. It's true the replicator has outperformed, but when you take the volatility into account of the product and you just look at the two sharp ratios to keep it simple, there's no difference. So I don't see any outperformance uh, on a risk-adjusted basis. Um, so that would be interesting to to uh, get Andrew's uh, thoughts about that. And of course, then we get on to more kind of the the idea of, um, I guess my, my two, the first one is not really a bone of contention because of course you would think that a firm like Andrew's should be able to do these uh, strategies cheaper because he doesn't have all the research costs uh, that we as a manager have um, he probably doesn't even need much of an organization to implement 12, 15 positions on a daily basis. Uh, so 
So so that kind of, in, in my mind at least, would justify why it should be cheaper. Um, but I would also say that it's um, <laughs> it was a funny comment, and I mentioned that to you before the... Uh, before we press record, that there was someone, and I'm sorry I forget who it was, but it was a brilliant comment who said, well, since they have to publish their positions every day because it's an ETF, um, couldn't you just replicate the replicate and just 10 basis points? I thought that was quite funny, actually, and and I guess you could. I mean, it's, you know, again, if if you don't get any bonus points for or um, being original and having to do thorough research, then anything can be replicated, I guess. And it's probably easier to replicate positions that are being published every day than trying to guess uh, what the managed futures uh, sector, uh, uh, how they're positioned. Um, So that should definitely be cheaper than the replicator. But I think one of my big concerns, and this doesn't go just to this particular product at all, of course, is that... I don't like the idea that things have to be as cheap as possible. And it's almost become like a crime if a manager who spent decades of time in terms of educating himself or has a big research team and spent millions of dollars on developing these techniques and products, and obviously we know how expensive compliance is, etc., etc. It's all now a crime for them to charge uh, a reasonable fee Um, and to make a profit from being in business like that. And that is what I don't like uh, with this. Um, For me, it comes down to the net performance. Um, So as we know from the Renaissance technology guys, I mean, even if you paid them 5% management fee and 46% performance fee, you would still be up massively every year. So who wouldn't want to do that? Um, And... um, and so, so, so that's one thing about you know why shouldn't managers be allowed to charge a reasonable fee? Why should we give away our IP almost for free? And the final thing uh, that I want to say about this is that I'm also concerned. I mean, there's this quote, uh, and I don't know uh, who who said it first, but you know, show me the incentive, and I'll show you the result, or something like that. But if you invest in products where there is no incentive, there's absolutely no incentive when you have flat fees. Um, other than to raise money, there's no incentive to improve your strategy or, um, you know, do the right thing by the client uh, at the end of the day, um, because all you get paid for is to raise more money. I think that is a bad incentive to have, and I frankly don't quite understand clients who who want to um, to do that. But I may be in minority here uh, about that. But that those are some of my concerns. Yeah, I think. Um it's it's not fair out there in the world of business and it's we see it all the time it's not fair you 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 know the market decides the price the market can tell you, you 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 may deserve it it may be unfair but this is what we're willing to pay it's based on competition uh there's no such thing as a formula that says here's what i've done here's what i think a fair price is please give it to me uh, <clears throat> it uh, i do think it's like you said, a problem, this race to the bottom on fees. We've seen it in S&P index funds. We thought 50 basis points or 20 basis points was unbelievably low. And then Fidelity goes to five and Vanguard goes to four and BlackRock goes to three. So this race to the bottom, it's, uh, and yet they all have great businesses and they love those businesses and they're making lots of money. I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen with this uh, fee competition 
if it even becomes one, but that's you know definitely something that uh, replicators have to worry about. The competition is coming. It's CTAs are going to defend themselves. Uh, they're going to not sit back and uh, and take this lightly. This loss of AUM possibly, and then just the distaste of seeing someone profit from their own uh, work and their own uh, whether. Uh, regardless of how much time and energy they put into it, they don't. It doesn't feel good and right. Uh, price competitions coming, just as in the same way. We don't. We can't predict this is going to go away and how it's going to impact CTAs and managed futures. Replicators can't predict how it's going to impact, you know, and what's coming for them. So it's. Uh, it's. But I think it's fairly interesting. Yeah. And to ask him about, can you replicate Chesapeake, which uh, would require. Uh, them to trade a lot more than 10 to 15 markets, which is what they do now, would be interesting to see what he says, uh, an outlier-based strategy. You know, why did Jerry do so well in a certain month? Well, it was because of Tesla. Whoa, you know, uh, that's crazy because everyone else in the whole industry was flat and Jerry made 5% because of Tesla. See, this is what happens when you play for these outliers. and, you know, the negative is you get those really bumpy returns and those big givebacks uh, and the high volatility that came along with Tesla and Moderna as well. So it'll be really fun. And hopefully it'll be uh, the first of many conversations we have with Andrew and and replication. And uh, I hear you about AI. I just threw that out there because I, I don't know anything about AI. So everyone's <laughs> laughing at me now. It's not AI. OK, sorry about that. Well, I don't think it is, but I mean, it could be. Who knows? We'll find out. We'll find out. And by the way, I completely agree with you that I don't think they could replicate Chesapeake on a month-by-month basis. But I think their I think their aim is well, maybe with the index to be pretty close. But but I think longer term, um, they they may be because obviously you could have a great month in um, by being involved in Moderna, but then it could cost you you know, another month before you get out, so to speak. So I'm, I'm, it'll be interesting to find out what he thinks the limitation is um, in terms of replication. Um, and can I just make another comment? Uh, this is a, the sure. topic you brought up that I think we we haven't talked about a lot, but I know that we, we're not in agreement on this, and that's, that's fine. And that's what makes this fun, uh, <clears throat> respectfully, uh, talking about our different philosophies. But... Uh, I'm not in your camp necessarily with this flat fee versus incentive fee, uh, incentive idea. Um, I think that there's some perverse incentives on incentives uh, to take undue risk. Certainly, I haven't seen it happen with CTAs as much as hedge funds that, you know, we're down 20%. We have a lot of overhead here. Let's just go for it because we're out of business if we don't recover that 20%. So let's just put on some big trades and hopefully we can uh, make this money back. And so you can see where that's going. I'm not saying it's pervasive, but I'm just saying people talk about that incentive to take on extra risk uh, at at a time where, you know, some of these large funds with very smart people, they just close down if if, uh, they can't get back to the high watermark in a certain amount of time. And I think uh, another thing, too, is that the larger the incentive fee, the larger the problem of after you get paid and you can lose some of that profit back and the client is now underwater because uh, because of the incentive fee. So that's I've heard people, clients complain about that as well. <clears throat> but if you really want to align incentives, there is the best way in the world 
to align incentives with the manager and the client. There's nothing better than the manager investing in his own fund. <laughs> so in July, when I lost you know, 5%, I lost 5%. I lost more than any of our clients. So I'm in that fund next to our clients, suffering, not just being paid an incentive on the upside, but literally giving back just as they did and uh, not just incentive but actual dollars that I have saved over the years that I'm really, I'm really concerned about. <clears throat> so uh, I think it's, uh, and I've read studies recently over the past few years, you and I probably talked about them. I remember one was Morningstar, and that's one of the keys that they found is how much money did the mutual fund managers actually have in their own fund, and that was a good indication of fund performance. I couldn't agree more. These are very valid points. And of course, you're going to find, and and we have seen recently, examples in the broader hedge fund community whereby they have completely uh, abused this whole incentive fee uh, structure. So I couldn't agree more. But I also agree with you that I actually haven't really come across this in the CTA space, uh, even though we've been doing this for quite a long time. Um, and maybe it is because we are rules based. So, and and maybe because we know that there is going to be longer periods of time where we're going to be underwater, and and so on and so forth. And of course, uh, certainly uh, at at uh, our shop, um, we have some <laughs> painful experiences with uh, being underwater for a while, but always staying the course and doing the right by the client, um, and not uh, closing the program, starting anew, or anything like that. And then I come really uh, want to underscore what you just said about this thing about how much does the manager have invested in their own fund. I think this is critical. Uh, I mean, that is by far one of the best ways to uh, assess whether you are fully aligned with your uh, with your clients. Uh, so um, very valid points that anybody, everyone considering investing in a fund should write down and have a top of their list uh, when they do their due diligence, that's for sure. And frankly, this is something that has surprised me because I have noticed, um, and this is not—I'm not, not going to name any names—but I have noticed that some of the people that uh, we look at with a lot of respect uh, in our industry, when you uh, for those who do disclose how much uh, is prop capital and how much is is client capital, sometimes you are really surprised of how little is actually the manager themselves. Um, so, so it is a valid point. I remember. Over the years, uh, some of the largest CTAs in the world that we all know would actually come out and say, we have no money invested in our funds. It, maybe it's a negative because we get too emotional and we're going to cut back too quickly because our money is there. And then uh, we already have 20% of the profit, so we're already kind of invested. Why would I double down with my own money that I just took out of the funds as incentive fee payments so I guess you can see it both ways. It's nothing's perfect. When human beings get backed up against the wall with fear and greed, it's probably really difficult to construct a structure that is going to take care of all of the things we're thinking and maybe wanting to do. I would say that we're so competitive in this industry that uh, as human beings, we're just to get to a certain level of trading and wanting to be a trader than becoming a trader, you're so competitive and you want to win uh, absolutely and relatively. And I think that for me to, for me to be incentivized, um, it doesn't take much. Pride is probably the most important thing that I want to win 
And I'd like to make money. I have made money. I'd like to make some more. But honestly, it, when I was thinking about that July and shaking my head about how poorly I had done, I thought, relatively speaking, it was just, man, I really don't like being in last place, um, especially since I'm out there talking about my philosophy so often. So it, fees and uh, was the last thing on my mind sometimes when it done. I don't need any incentive to... I've been doing this for 40 years, and I've been getting up every day wanting to do my best, irrespective of any sort of monetary uh, concerns. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this might be a really bad analogy, but this this argument uh, about not having any money in, 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 in your own fund, I'm thinking whether that's the same as you getting on a plane and the pilot is saying um, to you, Uh, before we take off, you should know that we are sitting in the control tower. We're remotely going to fly you tonight across the Atlantic. Uh, but don't worry, um, we're going to be with you all the way. Um, and so, uh, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's important to be uh, aligned in terms of being invested in the same uh, vehicles even uh, and not separate accounts that do different trades and all that stuff. But I think there we are. I think that's a great analogy. I love it. I'm going to copy it. Beautiful. <laughs> Feel free. Yeah. Now, I've got a few other topics that we uh, want to uh, touch on today, and uh, not that we want to get into, uh, you know, we can decide on how much detail uh, we want to get into. I don't know if you read the last, um, I like sometimes picking up articles um, that's been um, posted recently, um, and and also talk about some of the things that um, other uh, well-known and well-respected uh, managers are doing. Um, so there was an article out um, in Hedge Fund Journal. Um, I saw it this week. It could have been out before, um, where they um, were speaking with Aspect Capital, obviously people who have been on the show here as well, and some of the new things that they were doing uh, with their models. Uh, they talked about, and, and I don't know if you read it, but you could comment on it um, as as you wish. They talked about having added uh, an eighth time frame, uh, or they may, maybe they call it speed uh, in their model. And this time it's below seven days, less than seven days. So, um, and they talk about that being something that is going to help them uh, in part dealing with these sharp reversals that we all hate, um, but have to, um, you know, accept uh, out there by reacting quicker. Um, so that's one thing that was interesting. They talk about increasing responsiveness in terms of changing uh, changes in volatility regimes, Probably not your cup of tea, um, so we can jump over that if you if you want. They talk about uh, something that really is in your wheelhouse, um, adding more markets to their core diversified strategy. Um, so they're probably seeing the same thing as or advantages that you're seeing. And then they talk about something that I actually thought was interesting. I don't know how I feel about it, but it was interesting. They talked about capping equity and bond exposure in their models. I imagine that's to the long side. I don't know. I'm guessing here. Um, so that the underlying clients wouldn't get too much of a long beta exposure uh, from their models because they're most likely invested in these markets themselves. So those were some of my takeaways. I don't know what you um, thought about the uh, the article. Well, with all due respect, I it's just so much wrong. Everything, every one of those bullet points. I'm not going to skip over. <laughs> Skip over something <laughs> okay. I don't like. Wow, that's the opposite of Jerry. Uh, well, and so let's go over each one of them, but let's start with the last one. Uh, oh my gosh. I mean, this is, once again, 
it's um, not trying to create the perfect portfolio, not trying to put forth your best um, idea and and uh, <clears throat> as in a, as a standalone. But once again, kowtowing to this strategy of crisis alpha, CTAs fit in to a a, a strategy a box. Uh, Cliff, if we talk about Cliff Asness, well, it's the same. It's just a given. It's a given. We're put on this earth for one reason, to fit into a portfolio, 5 or 10%, because the world loves stocks and uh, maybe fixed income again one of these days. And, uh, and this is kowtowing to that idea and uh, embracing it to raise assets and um, keep the business going, the management fees coming in, and it's disgusting. I hate it. And uh, it really does separate, um, you know, I used to be so negative on managed futures. Let's get rid of that term, managed futures. Uh, but now I have changed. I've embraced managed futures totally, which is the reason I love the replicator to create this pain for managed futures. And it's because it's managed futures versus trend following. It, it makes no sense to call it classic trend following. It's trend following. And what firms like this do is not trend following they will they start with trend following and they make it unrecognizable with filters and um, these these uh, restraints they put on themselves to fit into this box that they've it's Stockholm syndrome uh, where they are sympathetic sympathetic to their captors so it really makes me uh, sad for them and for the industry but it does separate now that we don't need to get rid of managed futures because that's the category that trend following plus a lot of other stuff belongs in. It belong, it deserves to be replicated. And the classic and the real trend following that we do, letting profits run, not having filters, but having mostly one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, that's not a mandate, but okay, two, two filters or, or a couple of filters and a stop loss, who knows? But yeah, it's really just um, the opposite of what what I believe in and where I came from and what, what I do still works. And I think it works just as well as what they're doing. Uh, I tweeted about this and I've made fun of it. I tweeted an eighth filter was recently added. Uh, other ongoing research refinements are increasing the models responsive to changing volatility regimes at each speed, the opposite of loose pants. And then a friend of ours, uh, responded, an eighth filter? Isn't the magic number seven? <laughs> so it just got worse from there, making fun of this over-optimization and uh, all of this quote-unquote research and uh, just trying to fit into this uh, <clears throat> idea of what managed futures is. It is uh, a lot of complexity, a lot of all and correlation management, dynamic volatility, uh, control and dynamic position resizing uh, and it's gets me going what do you think uh, well to be perfectly frank I did not expect such a strong <laughs> response from you so I uh, I kind of feel bad for having brought it up and I will <laughs> s start by saying that anyone from Aspect is welcome to come and rebut all of this uh, but um I'm, on the other hand, I'm obviously not surprised this is how you feel because you're very consistent with your um, beliefs. And I think that's very important. Um, and, and as I often say to you, and, and, and you already brought up a point where we don't necessarily always see, uh, see things eye to eye, um, I've said to you many times that it is true 
that uh, our industry has evolved and there are other things that, such as dynamic position sizing, all of those things we, we discuss from time to time. But I always say to you, I just don't really see the main, the big difference in the numbers. I mean, from month to month, of course, uh, we, we can see differences. In the long run, I don't necessarily um, see, um, you know, a few managers uh, doing, quote-unquote, trend following. Let's just call it that now, not classical trend following. Outperforming everyone else. It, it, it can happen for a few years, of course, um, but over a 20-year period, um, when you risk adjust it uh, for for leverage and and volatility, I, I just haven't seen it. So I'm open minded that there are more ways of doing this thing. But I think most importantly, you have to do it the way you believe in, because otherwise you're never going to stick with it. So I applaud you for taking that approach. And obviously, you've evolved over over the years, and you've come to this place. Um, that we actually talked about last time we spoke, where you said, I'm actually going to pivot my my trend following. I'm going to do something that I haven't done before. I'm going to increase the number of single stocks, et cetera, et cetera. So I applaud you for having this very clear vision as to what you want to do and actually not care about the response from other people and 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 not even care whether people would say, well, that's not really trend following uh, anymore. Well, they wouldn't say it's not trend following, but that's not really a CTA anymore. And you're just saying, well, I'm going to do this because this is what I want. So I, I, I applaud that. And we should, um, you know, we should encourage people to be, um, you know, authentic and not just fit into, you know, uh, some kind of narrative um, because that's not a, it's not going to produce the best work uh, we do. So that, that would be kind of my response. Well, I want to comment on that, but, um, before I forget, I wanted to say that um, I have been kind of saying the same thing, being negative on uh, the type of managed futures programs that are continue to evolve away from trend following for so long. And the response I've gotten from the European CTAs, who've been, who are tremendously successful, is no response. And I don't think that's going to change. I think that's their I think that's their best strategy. Don't pay attention to someone who is irrelevant as Jerry. And I agree, that's probably their best idea. I would say that they started it because back in the late 90s and 2000s, Winton, Aspect, Ewan Kirk, they came out specifically talking about simple turtle trend following, which doesn't work, and it's kind of easy and stupid and simple. And using the words turtles and uh, uh, leaving no doubt as to uh, comparing us to uh, a very unsophisticated way of trading versus their very sophisticated and the new way of doing things and the new strategies. And so I don't feel like uh, it's, I don't want to be, I want to, don't want to be disrespectful, but this is all fair game. You know, they this is what they use to raise money, uh, to set themselves apart, and um, and ironically, the U.S. CTAs who who have thrived adopted a similar strategy. So there's almost, as you say, nobody of any relevance who's doing this sort of more classic trend following, other than really small firms like ours. So. Um, you know, it's all to set yourself apart and to tell people how wonderful you are in a respectful way is um, you may end up sort of by definition criticizing and uh, comparing yourself to people you feel are inferior. 
So, you know, tit for tat. And, um, and in fact, uh, oh, the other big question you have uh, talked before, but I think you always forget my answers. And I think I have a good response to your idea. And, and in fact, I don't know of any CTA who has made nearly the amount of money that I've made over the past two and a half years. So we had 20 in 2020, 20, over 20 last year, and high teens this year. So I do think that you are seeing, belatedly, let's say, some major differences in hunting outliers. I think that the reason you don't see much of a difference is because if you look into managed futures, no one's really trading the outlier type strategy that requires these big drawdowns. I don't know of anyone out there who has any substantial assets or and by in the evidence of a track record that looks anywhere close to what I've been doing, which is you know being willing to give up a lot of profits, which is what I did in so many markets this year. But it kind of gets offset when natural gas goes back to the highs or cotton and some of these markets reverse after these major drawdowns. So um, the reason you're not seeing it and seeing much of a difference is because there's nothing to see except, uh, and I haven't been consistently doing that over my entire career. And I think the track record that I see on a back test that trades systems like I trade now uh, the real life backtest doesn't exist, so uh, there isn't a lot of difference because the industry doesn't do what I do or what uh, I'm advocating. You know, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I think th- there could be. Uh, I'm very open to that. I think there could be more differences in performance going oh, forward. Oh, let's say Mul- Mulvaney. Um, I don't think he's quite as long term as I am, and not that similar to I am uh, in some ways, but. Oh boy, his track record looks a lot different, and he's made a lot more money than almost anybody in the industry. Yeah, but not over the last twenty years. That's the, that's my point. Yeah, this year perhaps, but over the last twenty years, um, you know, you know, the firm I work for, uh, just to mention one other. I mean, so all I'm just saying is that um, I agree with you on on the point that there could be more difference in 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 the future, mainly because I actually think that there will be. Uh, more divergence in the markets uh, and which should benefit trend following and could potentially benefit, as you say, um, you know, um, lack of a better word, classical trend following um, better than than um, the uh, the more constrained version. But let's leave it for now. I think we I think we did a decent job in um, in getting everybody's coffee um, down the wrong throat <laughs> if they're listening to it in the morning. Um, so, anyways, just. Going on to the next article, uh, so to speak, because I'm sure you have some uh, opinions on this as well. It's it's Cliffus uh, Asnes's uh, article, um, which um, I thought was very good. It he touches on something that I think both you and I uh, have experienced, namely that you get punished as a pure trend follower. In, in particular during these periods where there is no performance um, and AUM just disappears. Uh, relative to maybe managers who found ways to produce a little bit of performance during those periods, and what uh, uh, Cliff is, is is writing is that he believes that that managers did that by adding other strategies, in particular carry strategies. Again, I don't I don't know, um, but I think um, they're smart people at AQR, so they probably have some better insights than I do. Um, now, what's interesting about this is when I read this. I was under the impression that 
a lot of the things that um, you and I and 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 others um, had talked about that maybe what 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 had meant that what was the reason behind the difference was more in terms of how they handled um, you know the volatility and uh, let's call it vol management or whatever we want to call it. Um, so I was kind of intrigued by Clifford's uh, idea that actually it could be carry, which is different for sure. Um, so um, so I thought that was interesting. And then, of course, he talks about the dual mandate, um, producing long-term good results, but also ideally producing um, returns uh, during equity crises. Um, and as I mentioned last week, and also uh, as Cliff actually uh, kindly acknowledged uh, on Twitter, uh, is that we don't have to agree, uh, of course, um, because I did say uh, in the podcast last week that that's probably one thing that I don't see any evidence uh, of in at least from the managers I know well that they put in specific uh, things uh, in their code to uh, make money when equities go down uh, we certainly don't um, but it just happens to be the fact that we have done that every time there's been a big equity crisis um, so anyways uh, what were your thoughts on on Cliff's article um, I think um, that he's he's sort of correct that uh, CTAs have sold their managed futures programs in a way that uh, for crisis alpha and for being there for stock sell-offs, and I think he was critical of negative skew strategies and uh, them not being not fitting in when the when the uh, the clients mostly need what they bought this managed futures products for, and trying to have it both ways. I do think he was maybe a little critical of a long equity exposure. I hear that a bit too that people criticizing equity exposure. You know, I think that 25% to each of the four sectors, currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds, is good. I think it's optimal. It's good for the CTA and the performance. Uh, scaling that back in order to, like you said about aspect, uh, we missed, I wanted to definitely talk about that. And that's kind of a crazy idea uh, to make your, make your portfolio worse. It's going to have worse performance with a non-optimal allocation to any of the sectors, but this is what clients would prefer, or is this gonna help us get in the portfolio? And so I don't think that that's ever a good idea. You know, one of our, one of your guests, Nigel, he criticized CTAs pretty heavily for not being more attuned, for being too long-term and not and trading more equities. Uh, raise my hand on that because it's going to uh, limit uh, our our qualities during a equity sell-off. So once again, people, some firms just double down on this and triple down on this is who we are. <clears throat> Other people have defined us and put us in a box. You're almost being dishonest if you're being long-term uh, and not trading and trading too many equities. You're kind of curve fitting over the past few years or decade, and it's just not right. And so the whole idea that you're a free human being trying to create a great, perfect portfolio for your clients who love trend following and diversification, you know, you're going to get called out on it. And so to some degree, I think that's just really a crazy idea. Yeah, well, I mean, staying on that topic um, of, of kind of crisis alpha, which I think everybody who listens to the podcast on a regular basis 
um, knows that I have mixed feeling about it. I loved it in the beginning, but now I've realized that that just opens too many doors in terms of what is a crisis. So so I would rather sort of uh, just talk about trend following as a non-correlated uh, return strategy. Um, but then this crisis alpha versus the perfect portfolio, I actually think this is an interesting topic because um, we know for a fact, uh, just looking at the evidence, that trend following strategies have at least delivered um, good returns in most periods of equity crises. But at the same time, we also know by looking at the evidence that um, trend followers have done well when there is no crisis. So I kind of lean more and more towards, I would love for people to think about trend following as the perfect portfolio. Um, and with all the attributes, not just the diversification, the fact that we can be long short, the fact that we are so strict on risk management and all of those things. But but that term has kind of disappeared. I know you and I talked about it a while back, but it's kind of disappeared again. Um, but what are your thoughts uh, on, on, on that? Um, do you think we can get people to look at this as the perfect portfolio? I think so over time. I think it's going to evolve, especially if the stock market starts acting more normal uh, versus uh, the past 10 and 20 years. I think uh, you just can't beat the product of uh, so much diversification and the risk control and preserving capital without any sacrifice on the upside. They've, you know, the this stock market has become the world's favorite. It's, you know, it was probably has a big advantage because it is accessible and it doesn't have leverage and it has gone up. But then when it starts to be the best performer of the four broad sectors, it just ramps it up even more that it's the only thing by the dip. Stocks always go up. And so, but I think as things get more uh, back to a level level playing field and more what we've seen in the in the in all the data and the histories, uh, when you and I started, we would show charts that CTA, managed futures, trend following, made a little bit more money than the stock market and had less risk, of course, because we do shorts and we have all the different diversification and the risk control. So uh, I think we'll get back to that idea. It sort of makes me uptight that crisis is just not even mentioned what it even means. We all know what it means. It means stocks. So we live in this stock-centric world that drives all of us kind of crazy. And you're right. I think uh, pursuing this perfect portfolio, this perfect trading strategy, I mean, it's not perfect. It's just better than everything else. Medium to long-term trend, <clears throat> as you said, we happen, we accidentally show up to help when stocks crash or when the stocks don't crash. You know, we're, the chances are greater for our strategy to be there and to add some protection and some profits because we we take advantage of every possible market and um, longs and shorts. So, but to twist your formula, to twist your system and your portfolio into something that is not optimal for your clients because you are going along with your captor and saying, yes, I am here on this planet for one reason, is to make your life with your stocks a little bit better is very silly, and it, that will go away um, because CTAs will get uh, CTA performance. Will once again one of these days probably we're probably in the middle of it or in the beginning of it because we've had three amazing years. 
we'll probably get back to where we were when you and I started and for many years after we started as well. You know, one of my ideas has been to um, totally reject the idea of adding stocks. Some CTAs add a permanent stock long to their strategy. I think what people need is trend following on their stocks, uh, not buy and hold on their stocks and then allocate to this wonderful trend following. How about take the wonderful trend following and put it in your dysfunctional portfolio of long stocks and bonds where you can suffer these ma- major drawdowns. Liquidate some of your your buy and hold, put it with a manager who is will trend follow those same stocks or a better portfolio, probably, uh, one that's not cap-weighted or one that is seeking more diversification than the indices. And uh, that's a natural progression. And so don't trade fewer stocks to fit into the portfolio. Trade more stocks and encourage your clients to... Uh, liquidate some of their buy and hold longs. So, staying on the theme of um, of stocks for a second here. Uh, so, I think you and I are in agreement that um, if you know, if we could only pick one uh, investment, it would be trend following because for us, it's the perfect portfolio, right? But if we look at the evidence, if we look at the numbers, um, if you took uh, your, and again, I agree with you. Don't don't change your trend following to fit into thing. But if you just took your regular trend following strategy, and you allocated fifty percent of your capital to that, and you allocated fifty percent to a long only uh, equity uh, index like the S and P five hundred, at least if we look at the evidence, the last three or four decades, you would have made more money than just having trend following on its own. That's just how the numbers stack up because of the correlation. Um, or, or I should say the non-correlation between the two. Um, so how do we, or how do you, how do you think about that uh, when the evidence suggests that actually it's probably better to mix and not just have trend following as your only investment? Well, I think the evidence that you talk about is pretty weak. It's not a long term. Um if someone came up to you and said, with inside your portfolio, Niels, I've figured out that the yen is the best currency, or the currencies are the best, why don't you just overload, uh, over, overtrade that market or that sector? You would say, no, that's not how it's done. We don't rely upon past. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. And, oh, but we do because stocks have had this great 10 to 20 year run. So stocks, uh, so I don't think that's good evidence. It's the past. We like to take small losses and let profits run blindly following these trends that people would scoff at because no one can predict the future. And the past performance of these markets is not reliable. So that's why we kind of adopt trend following. So let's apply that same rules or same philosophy to the stocks and not buy into this idea that we've seen uh, what's happened in the past and we know what's going to happen in the future. The best stocks are a good sector. They're great trenders. In some years, they have been the, the best superstar trenders, tech bubble, tech tech stocks, and uh, things like that, and the Fed put. And so let's get on board with those. They're, they are worthy uh, markets to put in our portfolio. We can really diversify better than an index. And let's apply this trend following. We believe in the trend following because we don't believe in the future and that the history is, is a good guide to the traps and the troubles that we may see in the future. So that's why we need a lot more evidence uh, you know, uh, than what has happened 
recently in the stock market. Because there is, even if you go back to the beginning and put all of the stock market data in there, I'm pretty sure that the optimizer would give you almost zero allocation to buy and hold stocks. Trend following makes the buy and hold stocks much, much better, much safer. And you know that's just the way we live. We, need, we want both the return and the massive capital protection we get from, from our strategy. Okay, fair point. We don't know the future. But if I, if I was going to take the opportunity to push back a little bit on that, I would say to you, well, your decision to allocate now 50% of your markets to equities must be based on a backtest that suggests to you that actually that is a good idea. So I don't see the difference between those two things. It's still relying on historical data because you don't know if allocating 50% of your markets to equities is going to be a good idea going forward. They could be stuck in a range for 15 years, for all I know. I agree. I mean, I agree totally. That's why I wouldn't do that. And so that's not what I would do. And um, okay. you probably can guess because I talk so bad about backtesting. So, so <laughs> you know, and I've been very consistent on this uh, many, many times. You, how do markets get into a portfolio? They get in based on two factors. One is liquidity and one is diversification. So I have made a call that there's massive diversification in these 5,000 stocks and that there is really not the stock market. Oh, there is if you look at indices and the way traditional people look at it and the S&P and the Dow and the NASDAQ. But if you look under that hood, you'll see a lot of longs, a lot of shorts, and a lot of flat positions, stocks going in all kinds of directions, and almost as if they're not stocks. And then every now and then, they get, go to one. I'll be long some, I'll be short some, I'll be flat some. And this is a great period to, you can see exactly what's happening. We love the diversification we get in all our other markets, the currencies. Well, we're short every one of them. Oh, yeah. We love the diversification we get in the bonds, in the short-term rates. We're short every single one of them. Oh, yeah. And commodities. Well, we just came out of a period where we're literally long every commodity except uh, I don't know, our friend Coco or something, right? Or the hogs in the, in the cattle. So wait a second. Stocks are not the only things that go to one or we'll get lopsided. We're long everything or we're short everything. We go through these periods. And then we learned or got reminded in 2020 that it wasn't just stocks went to one, everything crashed in Feb 2020. No, every market crashed. We, I came in long, currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds, and they all crashed. So we'll get this diversification in the stocks, and in, in trading half your portfolio or a third of your portfolio in stocks is totally should be driven by the diversification qualities of that sector. And so I feel like that that's... Uh, stocks are going to give you more diversification because there's just too many of them. There's too many to choose from. Uh, if there were 5,000 commodities, they they would be 50 or 60% of my portfolio. Uh, but correlation is not a reliable friend. We have it sometimes. We love it. It makes us different. We increase that non-correlation not, uh, due to shorting, but then sometimes it bites us and uh, we don't have it anywhere and we've seen we've seen that happen as well. Uh, fair compact, uh, and of course, only time will tell. So we will monitor this um, as we go along. 
All right, I'm going to jump over the topic I had written down about vol management because I think we've beaten that horse so many times. And I want to jump to something that is always fun, and that is to discuss one of our uh, both favorite uh, authors uh, or columnists, uh, Morgan Housel. He's out with another um, article uh, labeled um, Big Beliefs. I don't know if you uh, tweeted from it or not. I just saw it this morning. So, um, But I thought some of his um, principles... Um, were, were quite interesting. He starts out by saying, when you first start to study a field, which could be like trend following, it seems like you have to memorize a zillion things. You don't. What you need to do is to identify the core principles, generally three to 12 of them, that govern the field. The million things you thought you had to memorize are simply various combinations of the core principles. Actually, I think that does really apply to trend following because as we've said so many times, as long as you have the core principles right, you're probably going to be fine. Um, the rest is just sort of nuances to um, what is a um, a very robust um, trading strategy. Anyways, with that in mind, um, I'm just going to throw a couple of his quotes uh, at you and then you can see what comes to mind, if anything. Um, he says um, he says in, in one of his points, these are his beliefs, by the way. So he said, these are a few things I believe. And some of them I had to shorten a little bit. Uh, so I have to, people would have to go and read the article, which they should to get the full. But one of the things he says is the, the inability to forecast the past has no impact on our desire to forecast the future. Certainly, uh, certainty is so valuable that we'll never give it up to uh, give up the quest for it. And most people couldn't get out of bed in the morning if they were honest about how uncertain the future is. And I think that's quite interesting because this is probably why trend following is not very prevalent in most people's portfolio, uh, is that there is this need or desire uh, for being able to forecast the future, which is something we just simply raise our hand saying, well, we don't know how to do that, so we're just going to follow our rules. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, not, even, not only do we not have a story, we were claiming there is no story. And so... People love stories, and uh, we, yeah, that's a great uh, quote. And I, the first part of that article, I really liked because that's the history of my career, is trying to remember the broad philosophies and understand uh, the truths about trading. Not that they can't change. Not that I didn't make mistakes and had to uh, uh, change what I thought was the truth, or I forget the truths a lot. But when these things come at you, like that, sound good. Like take profits early, or Vol manage or correlations, correlation manage, and all of these things that you're just going to be bombarded with with from uh, successful people. I just would always want to go back to Jerry. Now, this is not one of the things you learned. It's you know how this works. You know how you were taught, and so stick with it. And that's you can't go go through life trying to memorize and uh, everything. So you need to uh, have inside your soul your trading beliefs and your worldview and hone down that worldview. And it doesn't have to be the same as everyone else. And it doesn't have to be perfect. And it will, you'll have to make some adjustments along the way. But for the way I learned and the way I succeeded, it's totally due to that uh, philosophy he mentions in the first few paragraphs. Yeah. And actually on stories, he, he writes, um, stories are more powerful than statistics because they're easier to understand and contextualize to your own life. The person who tells the most compelling story wins, not who has the best idea or the right answer, 
just whoever tells a story that catches people's attention and gets them to nod their heads. And so that definitely is exactly like that. There's another thing that um, he he uh, puts in as things that he believe in, uh, which I also find is, is very relevant. He says here, sitting still feels reckless in a fast-moving world, even in situations where it offers the best odds of long-term compounding. And I think that really goes to the fact how difficult it is to tell to get people to understand that most of the time we do nothing as actually as mark uh, said last week on the podcast trend following is the is a lazy man's strategy because it's you know most of the time there's very little to do you know it reminds me back in 19 you knew me i think in the 90s and i in 1999 i was tremendously overweight and i just decided i had to do something and i started down this path of diet and fitness working out, lifting weights, and doing cardio, and then getting control of my diet. And then I, tr- I had tremendous success. Uh, I lost 65, 70 pounds in nine months, and I never looked back. And so I thought, you know, what did I learn? And I learned that in doing that, it really, you have to adopt this mentality of practicing. it To get your discipline down and to uh, achieve things in life, it's a lot like practice. You know, you get better and you get uh, you don't really understand why and how but you look back and say oh, okay i really practiced and got and understood what it took and i th- i just thought it was really akin to practicing and recently i was thinking you know sitting through these drawdowns and adopting this long term strategy and sitting on your hands when uh, like at that one podcast where mark was like well wheat is a short and i was like oh crap i'm still long and it's just like I didn't like to hear that because everyone is short but me. And okay, that didn't work out, but Nat Gas rallied to new highs. And um, some of these other markets, uh, corn and soybeans, I kept those positions. And my rates, some of the rates really rallied. And I, you know, so I was like, you know, this takes mental practice to deal with these givebacks. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned something last week with Rich, I think, and you were like, um, I think you were sort of referencing something I had said, that you enjoy uh, people like me talking about loose pants, but then we complain about the performance. And I was like, yeah, oh yeah, that's like an outlet. We talk a big game, we're talking ourselves up, we're trying to give ourselves a bit of confidence and repeating what we believe so we can stick with it. But then we're humans, we don't like it when we lose money. It's not like a weakness as much as it is Part of it's two different parts of our brain. You know, we need this as a to protect ourselves, to talk it up and remind ourselves how much we believe in what we do, and then we just shake our head and we just really dislike that poor relative performance and giving back profits. We have not conquered giving the strain and the anxiety of giving back profits. We have conquered sitting on our hands, relying on the upon the research that says be longer term. And it's two vastly different things. I have not conquered uh, my desire for chocolate cake. I just don't eat it. But I, I think it's, I remember it being very, very good. And I'm sure I would love it if I had a bite. Now, there are two two more uh, beliefs that I just want to mention. Uh, one is, and this is probably why I remembered it earlier today uh, in our conversation, he does write, incentives are the strongest force in the world. So this is why I commented that, 
you know, I think it's funny that people prefer uh, funds that have no incentive fee. But anyway, be let, uh, leave that as it may. Um, but the last one I, I just want to hear your th- thoughts on before we wrap up. Uh, he writes here, it takes less effort to increase confidence than it does ability. Confidence gives the impression of removing uncertainty, which we desperately want and are quick to embrace, while ability is constantly under attack from competition and an evolving economy. Well, was he saying that, um, um, I, I, I guess I really don't understand the point. Um, was, he, confidence was he saying confidence takes, is bad less, or good? Or? Yeah, it takes less effort to increase confidence than it does ability. Yeah. I think I don't have confidence in my positions. <laughs> you know, I never believe, <laughs> um, you know, we go home on Friday, last Friday, this Friday, we had some nice moves, let's say the currencies and the close on the lows, and that's really good. I never have confidence in what's going to happen. I have confidence in my broad principles and my systems that over a long, long period of time, this is my best shot at doing well and being happy with my performance, which means so much to me. But uh, short-term confidence, I do think that that's a problem. People want this kind of confidence in their decisions and in their uh, uh, positions, and I just don't think it's warranted. Because when it goes wrong, confidence can go wrong. Um, you know, one thing I forgot to mention about replication is, I don't know how Andrew feels, but I would just guess that he doesn't have this one part of anxiety that you and I have. And that is, his his decisions are not on the line. Like, he just says, don't blame me. I don't have any anxiety here when we lose money or make money. It's these other CTAs. It's the top 20 CTAs telling me what to do. And like, you and I are like, oh, gosh. What's wrong with us? Why can't we do better? I hate these drawdowns. People criticize me. Uh, and so I think that, you know, confidence is a double-edged sword. I don't want to have too much confidence in my performance, but uh, sort of philosophically sitting back with my, sitting on my hands and thinking that um, I'm confident in the long-term, in the long-term process that I have established is much more psychologically safe. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's you. You hit it right there on, on on the head. I mean, I think the confidence we have is in the process, is in the strategy, um, and that's obviously super important, especially if you when you go through these drawdowns. Uh, so I think that. But at the same time, I think also it is equally important to have the um, being humble about uh, what the markets can do to us uh, in the meantime um, as we go through this. Uh, uh, eventful uh, and unforeseeable journey uh, as as investors and as trend followers. Jerry, this was fun. Thank you so much for uh, for doing this. Uh, next time you're back, it'll be with Andrew. So I can't wait for that uh, to happen. Um, and um, you know, if anybody wants to support uh, what we do here, uh, please go to iTunes and Spotify, leave a rating and review. Uh, or even better, do that and share the podcast with friends and families and colleagues. Um, We certainly appreciate that. Next week, I'm joined by Alan, so make sure you get your questions to us, uh, sending them to info at toptradersonplug.com. We'll do our best to um, answer them. Um, And I think with that, from Jerry and me, thanks ever so much for listening. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. 
Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.